You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There comes a soldier. His bare feet are seen through his worn-out shoes, his legs nearly naked from the tattered remains of only a pair of stockings, his breeches not sufficient to cover his nakedness, his shirt hanging in strings, his hair disheveled, his face meager, his whole appearance pictures a person forsaken and discouraged. He comes and cries, I am sick, my feet lame. My legs are sore, my body covered with this tormenting itch, exhausted by fatigue, hunger, and cold. I fail fast, and I shall soon be no more. Albigens Waldo was a surgeon from Connecticut attached to the Continental Army. While the army was camped at Valley Forge, he was their surgeon. He was the one in charge of inoculating the troops for smallpox under Washington's strict orders. He's known for keeping a diary of that winter, and it was published in 1861. Had a great reputation for professional skill, but he suffered along with the soldiers he cared for. December 21st. Preparations are made for huts. Provisions scarce. A general cry from the camp this evening among the soldiers. No meat! No meat! The distant veils echoed back the melancholy sound. No meat! No meat! Imitating the noise of crows and owls also made a part of the confused music. What have you for your dinners, boys? Nothing but fire cake and water, sir. At night... Gentlemen, the supper is ready. What is your supper, lads? Fire cake and water, sir. Very poor beef has been drawn into our camp the greater part of this season. A butcher bringing a quarter of this kind of beef into camp one day, who had white buttons on the knees of his breeches. A soldier cries out, There, there, Tom, is some more of your fat beef. By my soul, I can see the butcher's breeches buttons through it. December 22nd. Lay excessive cold and uncomfortable last night. My eyes are started out from their orbits like a rabbit eyes, occasioned by a great cold and smoke. December 23rd. This evening an excellent player on the violin of that soft kind of music which is so finely adapted to steer up the tender passions. While he was playing in the next tent to mine, these kind of soft airs it immediately called up in remembrance. 
all of the endearing expressions, the tender sentiments, the sympathetic friendship that has given so much satisfaction and sensible pleasure to me from the first time I gained the heart and affections of the tenderest of the fair. A thousand agreeable little incidents, which have occurred since our happy connection, were now recalled to my mind and filled me with these tender emotions and agreeable reflections, which cannot be described. I wished to have the music cease, and yet dreaded its ceasing. December 24th. Huts go on slowly. Cold and smoke make us fret. But mankind are always fretting, even if they have more than their proportion of the blessings of life. But I don't know anything that vexes a man's soul more than hot smoke continuously blowing into his eyes, and when he attempts to avoid it, is met with a cold and piercing wind. December 25th, Christmas. We are still in tents when we ought to be in huts. The poor sick suffer much in tents this cold weather. We give them mutton and grog and a capital medicine once in a while to start the disease from its foundation at once. December 28th. Yesterday upward of 50 officers in General Green's division resigned their commissions Six or seven of our regiment are doing the like today. All this is occasioned by officers' family being so much neglected on the home on account of provisions. When the officer has been fatiguing through wet and cold and returns to his tent, where he finds a letter directed to him from his wife, filled with the most heart-aching tender complaints, acquainting him with the incredible difficulty with which she procures a little bread for herself and children, what man is there who has the least regard for his family, whose soul would not shrink within him, who would not be disheartened from preserving in the best of causes the cause of his country, when such discouragements as these lie in his way? January 1st, New Year. I am alive. I am well. Huts go on briskly, and our camp begins to appear like a spacious city. Nothing tends to the establishment of the firmest friendship like mutual sufferings. Valley Forge is an iconic moment in American history, so iconic that I think our modern image of it may contain some more myths than not. And, you know, we may really not even know what it was really like there. That's why I wanted to discuss it a bit today. The two authors that join me on this program, Bob Drury and Tom Clavin, are the authors of a book called Valley Forge. They're also the authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Heart of Everything That Is, about Red Cloud. Their contention is that Valley Forge was the most important moment for the Revolutionary War, and thus the most important moment for America. We have this image of Valley Forge and what the hardships were there, and it seems like the two greatest offenders were the enemy army and the weather. And I talked to Bob Drury about that, because the reality may be 
that neither one was the true problem. You know, whatever I learned in civics class or eighth grade American history, I seem to recall, well, a lot of half-naked, freezing soldiers starving to death in the snow and Let's see, George Washington sitting on a big white charger watching them starve to death in the snow. And as we started delving into the story, the myths, both large and small, just jumped out of us. I'll give you a few examples. For one, okay, the snow I mentioned. As it turns out, the winter of 1777-1778 was one of the mildest winters in southeast Pennsylvania. Yes, there were a few hellacious snowstorms and an ice storm to boot, but for the most part, it was warm, and Washington hated that. His uh, previous winter camp in Morristown, New Jersey, and his subsequent winter camp in Morristown, New Jersey, were both far more Arctic, but he hated this cold, warm, cold, warm, cold, warm. He'd get a a four-day snowstorm, and that would be followed by 40 degrees and a rainstorm that would just melt everything. The haphazardly dug latrines would overflow. The horses who had starved to death and when they couldn't be scavenged for meat had been buried in frozen ground so they weren't that deep suddenly they were popping up on the ground i tell you i personally i know tom and i read so many journals diaries memos and one of the overriding themes was how much the place stunk from all the from all the 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 latrine detritus and the dead horses that that was one myth another myth was well the pennsylvania campaign had so ravaged that area that there was no food. That is completely wrong. The the fall, summer and fall of 1777, produced one of the highest crop yields of the decade in that area. It's that the people surrounding, the farmers and the merchants, many of them Quakers, and there was many a soldier and officer who survived Valley Forge who went to his deathbed cursing what he called those damn Quakers. They preferred to smuggle their cattle, their pigs, their poultry, their wheat, their corn into British-occupied Philadelphia where they were being paid pounds sterling, sometimes even gold, instead of the pretty much worthless script that the Continental Congress was issuing. I always get, this brings a shock when I speak to crowds. Did you know there were 750 black soldiers at Valley Forge? Uh, Both freemen and freed slaves, mostly, no, not mostly, all, whose New England masters had issued certificates of payment. And these men were not, they said, if you fight for the duration of the war, you're free men. And those are the smaller myths that we all get wrong about Valley Forge. But the great, great myth is that Washington was not just fighting a one-front war against the British. He was fighting a two-front war militarily against General Howe and politically against the Continental Congress, primarily a New England faction, who had more or less lost faith in him and wanted to replace him as general uh, head of the Continental Army. Between politics and the enemy and the running of an army in a military situation, Washington's got quite a bit on his mind. And as I talked to Tom Clavin about the conditions at Valley Forge were not something he could immediately and personally address. Washington was not, you know, directly in charge of supplying the troops. You know, that was that's what a quartermaster was for. That's what an inspector general is for. And there were people in place who were supposed to perform these jobs, and they were doing a terrible 
job at it. They were, they were, you know, they were falling down on the job. They were ignoring things. They were skimming off the top. Uh, some some cases, you know, lining their own pockets by selling supplies that are supposed to go to the army. You could sell it to private interests. There were there were twelve thousand men that came into the Valley Forge encampment, which is not a huge army. I mean, it was a lot. It did you know when they finished building the huts and erecting tents, uh, suddenly Valley Forge was the the seventh largest city in the United States. So I think that Washington already understood that there were some problems. It wasn't until he they got into Valley Forge and the system completely broke down that the magnitude of the predicament they were in became clear that there would be literally no food that there would be you know the, the they had water because when it, when it started to snow they could they could melt some snow but you know they would have to make things like fire cakes which was a little bit of of, of yeast and then then cooked with 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 ash in the fire there were sometimes days without any kind of meat uh there was no fish and so uh i i think that uh washington and the senior officers were, were thunderstruck by the depth of the predicament and and that was but it turned out to be one of several you know huge challenges that he had to face if it was so difficult to supply and it was in this kind of quaker area why was valley forge chosen a political compromise bruce a political compromise there were actually congressmen who wanted washington to keep attacking philadelphia he knew that was impossible he couldn't do that with barefoot men who were starving to death. But on the other hand, he also knew it was politically impossible to pull the entire Continental Army far back into the interior of Pennsylvania. So Valley Forge kind of came about as a compromise. It was a good defensive position, too. It's on a plateau, uh, a steep drop-off on two sides. I mean, it does appear to be. You have kind of the mountains. You can see what's coming. Yeah, well, they did erect on Mount Joy. They did erect a 40-foot tower which gave them a vantage point. In other words, the British were not going to surprise them. Mm. An all-out British assault was not going to surprise Washington and the Continental Army of Valley Forge. They were close enough to Philadelphia to try to put together some semblance of protection for the surrounding area. They were far enough away to know if the British were coming, and it was a political compromise. I think one of the key things to understand about Valley Forge that might be misunderstood is that it comes after three decisive defeats of the American army led by Washington trying to protect the city of Philadelphia. And those are, first, Anthony Wayne is tripped up by a night assault by Bayonet and his... Armies devastated in the Paoli Massacre. Uh, then an attempt by Washington's army to defend Philadelphia at Brandywine Creek fails, and the army's routed. But Germantown is probably the most disappointing. As September wound down, Washington was again cautiously stalking the British, moving his army within 16 miles of Germantown. Congress, particularly the Pennsylvania delegation, was pressing him to attack. But he was not certain that he had sufficient firepower to stand and fight the bulk of British regulars stationed at Germantown, much less the total British force 
surprising the enemy would be his only recourse. General Howe, the British commander, solved his counterpart's problem, as Washington suspected. By occupying Philadelphia, Howe had created an internal crisis. On the march to the city, his troops had provisioned themselves by living off the countryside, particularly the farmsteads around Valley Forge. Now, however, his quartermasters reported their food and gunpowder supplies dwindling. It was imperative for Howe to break the stronghold the Americans had on the Delaware River and allow his brother's supply ships to pass. Continental regulars manned two forts that constituted a strategic choke point on the Delaware. Small outpost at Billingsport, where the Delaware's main channel swung hard against the New Jersey embankment, that outpost could conceivably form a threat to his brother's supply ships. This would be the British general's first target. It was the opportunity for which Washington had been waiting. On September 29th, his scouts reported two regiments of departing Germantown and marching south. Washington correctly surmised their intentions. On October 3rd, the entire Continental Army had broken into four columns and marched all night in preparation for a daybreak attack. The two center columns, led by the General Sullivan and Green, were made up of regulars, now numbering close to 8,000 men, 3,000 militiamen under the command of General Smallwood, and Pennsylvania Generals Armstrong were apportioned to either wing. Their objective, to encircle and converge in waves on the British at Germantown, driving them south toward Philadelphia before Cornwallis could lead reinforcements up. It was Washington's bad luck that by sunrise on Saturday, October 4th, the gorges and defiles that had dominated the landscape in and around Germantown were obscured by a strange and unsettling fog so thick that his men could barely make out compatriots advancing a few yards away. Initially, the two columns of regulars moved on parallel tracks through the misty shroud, with one of Sullivan's divisions under General Wayne's command so surprising the British pickets as to make matchwood of their defenses. While the bulk of the enemy force fell back, helter-skelter for nearly two miles, trilling cries of revenge for Paoli filled the air as Continentals advanced into the village of Germantown itself. Wayne's officers attempted, without much success, to prevent the furious Pennsylvanian troops from bayonetting wounded redcoats left behind by comrades fleeing in wild disorder. It appeared for a brief moment that the route would continue to Philadelphia. And then Washington watched from horseback as his regulars poured past abandoned enemy tents and discarded cannons. But the militiamen on either flank inexplicably failed to push forward and engage and engulf. Then two inner columns, hindered by fog, were unable to form up as planned to create a solid front. I talked to Tom Clavin about what happened in Germantown. What happened at Germantown was, I mean, for, there was some bad luck involved. There was a terrible fog that, 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 that saturated the battlefield, and, 
and the American forces sort of got lost in this fog, and they started shooting each other, each unit thinking they were fighting the British, and so some of the casualties were self-inflicted. And, uh, and, and you always had a problem, too, at crucial moments where, uh, you know, you talk about the untrained, undisciplined men. You, you didn't have an officer corps that had graduated from West Point in Annapolis, you know, that, that kind of thing. General Green's plank had to this point made good headway, but now one of his divisions, commanded by General Adam Stevens, stumbled in behind General Wayne's men and began firing at any movement before it. It did not help that General Stephen was visibly drunk for the duration of the fight. He was later court-martialed. Identifying pieces of white paper, all that the Continental Army had to show that they were indeed Continentals, with so many different various types of uniforms in the Army, proved ineffectual in the fog. And the most forward Continentals were caught in a crossfire of musket balls, quick throbs of light in the soupy murk. At first, light patter, then a downpour. Some came from the direction of retreating redcoats, others from the upper stories of the town's plethora of stone houses occupied by the enemy. And now more came from the mystery force to their rear. Many of Wayne's troops turned and fired on Stephen's soldiers as the battlefield was transformed into dripping mist and sulfurous gun smoke, punctuated by the ripping silk sounds of metal shot. The confusion accelerated when British sappers began to torch Germantown's field of hay and buckwheat. Plumes of black smoke further obscured the terrain until the bewildered American regulars finally collapsed onto themselves. Now Cornwallis's reinforcements were, three hours into the engagement, streaking up from Philadelphia and pouring into the fight. Yeah, the Continental Army managed to you know, snatch defeat from the jars of victory. You know, in, in both Brandywine and Germantown, which ultimately were losses for the Continental Army, sections of the Army, units in the Army, showed a lot of courage and, and you know, withstood British charges and the bayonet charges and and the much more disciplined and, and well-fed and, and uh, 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 British soldiers and the Hessian soldiers, the, the hired mercenaries from Germany. And so, you know, at Brandywine, at Germantown, you had officers that were either, uh, in, you know, making the wrong decisions at the wrong time or had been incompetent from the start. And they were finally found out when placed into a situation where you could either, you know, make a stand or break and run. So, uh, you know, Washington knew that he had some generals uh, who he could count on, who were good generals and who were loyal to him. But, you know, once you got past the senior generals, um, you know, you had a, you had a, uh, it was kind of risky whether you're going to end up with a, the right officer at the right moment. Many times it was the wrong officer at the wrong moment, and, and that uh, could spell defeat. Washington knew that after the disappointments, well, 
quite more. <laughs> disappointment is uh, putting it mildly. After the losses at Brandywine Creek, after the Paoli Massacre, after the loss at the Battle of Germantown, he knew as a long-standing military man. I mean, don't forget, he had fought alongside the British against the French in the French and Indian War. He knew that the best way to regroup and refit and retrain his army was to move well into the interior of Pennsylvania. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. ClickGranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And there, without fear of attack, where there was plenty of game, where there was plenty of food in the the country. Exactly. But politics played such a role that the Pennsylvania state legislatures backed up by the continent, by members of the Continental Congress, said, "No, no, 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 no! You cannot leave southeastern Pennsylvania open to what they termed the deprivations of the British in Philadelphia. You cannot just allow the British to run out of Philadelphia anytime they want. And we needed American defense." You know, they really were uh, fighting in enemy territory. In fact, I think the New Englanders thought they were in a heathen land because Quakers were not, uh, there wasn't, a, they might have, tol- some might have tolerated it, but it wasn't really an acceptable religion to them. They were in this heathen land and also an enemy land where any time the army moved through there, they could be assured their movements would be um, uh, given to the British. There were roaming gangs of, uh, and despite uh, the, the, uh, the friend's precept against lifting weapons, there were Quakers who took up arms, mm-hmm. but they took up arms for the British, the Doan mm-hmm. Gang, consisting of five Burley brothers whose, fa- whose father had been, his house had been uh, taken by the Whigs. So the Doans went rogue, uh, five brothers and a cousin, I believe. And they would actually provide armed escort for merchants, Quaker and non-Quaker, moving their goods into Philadelphia, and Washington did not have enough troops to patrol all the roads from Montgomery, nearby Montgomery County, from Bucks County, which was kind of a hotbed of Toryism, from even Chester County, where Valley Forge existed, lower Chester County, as Alexander Hamilton wrote, was tinged red with Toryism. And yeah, Washington would try to send out patrols, Casimir Pulaski's his, his, even though his horses were emaciated, he was based in Trenton, and Washington would plead with Pulaski, can you please? There was, there was just too much area for Washington to interdict all the, the roads going into Philadelphia, and he tried. People have this iconic 
vision that I don't know if they get a true appreciation for how tough it was for the average soldier. Visiting uh, foreign officers who were either coming over to sign up to fight for Washington, to fight for the, uh, the American cause, or coming to Valley Forge as observers. They were shocked to see the sentries guarding the winter encampment naked. And I'm not using that euphemistically. I am saying literally naked, wrapped in a ragged blanket, barefoot, standing on their hat in the snow or the freezing mud. And these were the sentries. People don't understand when they say, oh, it was an ill-equipped and underfed and mm. underclothed force. It was underclothed is an understatement. I mean, half the half the soldiers there had no shoes. It was it was a, a, a desperate fight for survival on a daily basis uh, through from December nineteenth when they got into the camp and until probably the spring started to take hold, and they also started to get some food supplies. But for the rest of December, for January, for February, February to, uh, to take off T. S. Eliot was the cruelest month at Valley Forge. And Washington was not certain that his army would last through February. He knew, everyone pretty much knew, that if the British had deigned to leave the comforts of Philadelphia, which was only 23 miles away, if they were to stage a winter assault on Valley Forge, all was lost. The Continental Army was lost, and likely the Revolution was lost. What they were also uh, fighting was uh, disease uh, and and the uh, malnutrition, starva- literally starvation, uh, not having any clothing, the exposure to the elements. I mean, if you if you don't have anything more than maybe a thin blanket to wrap around you to wear every day, it doesn't have to be the coldest winter <laughs> of the decade to suffer. And 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 obviously resistance is lower. So if there was cholera going through the camp, if there was smallpox, if there was anything else, a lot of these guys were catching it and. And, you know, we didn't have the kind of medicines, anything near what, 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 what we, we have today. So many times, if you got sick, that, was, that could be a death sentence. 2,000 men who died, at, who perished at Valley Forge, probably about 1,000 of them from starvation. The rest, a combination of malnutrition, exposure, and, and starvation. I mean, the three kind of go hand in hand. And in early January, they thought, we're about to run out of food. This, and Washington actually wrote a letter to Congress saying, unless you ship emergency uh, shipments of food, clothing, arms, medicine, this army is either going to starve, disband, or disperse. Now, this was very unlike Washington, who was always very politic. But he was just laying it on the line for Congress. Albigen's Waldo, a Connecticut surgeon, he said, today... A special dispensation. We were served a supper of lamb, cabbage, onions, and potatoes without the lamb, the cabbage, the onions, or the potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think many people have a social studies textbook view of Valley Forge. I mean, there is immediate name recognition. Um, Yes, Valley Forge, okay, Revolutionary War. And there was probably in their textbook an illustration of uh, several, you know, barely clothed men, freezing in the snow, and George Washington on his horse looking down at men freezing in the snow. And you know, sometimes beyond that, people don't really know what Valley Forge was about. They, they, was it a battle? Was it the Battle of Valley Forge? Uh, and, and, and so they don't really know how difficult it was. 
One of the things I notice is that you always think of cattle as uh, something in the, oh, that's that's the Wild West, you know, where Texas. people are thieving yeah, cattle. Texas, the and horns, yeah, right. At this time, cattle's all over New England. It's extremely important uh, to have uh, meat. Uh, and I notice that there's stealing of cattle, maybe by the Doan Gang or by um, by the British, uh, intercepting right. cattle from New England. That's causing all sorts of problems. The, the British well realized that New England was, I mean, Washington could try to wring Pennsylvania dry of any supplies he might need. But the key to keeping his army alive for this winter were New England supplies. And so they would drive cattle herds. You're right. We do think, oh, cattle herds, longhorns, that's Texas, that's Lonesome Dove. But cattle herds were constantly being driven down from New England via several surreptitious routes. And maybe one in eight, one in seven actually got through Mm. to Valley Forge and the rest were cut off. Uh, by either loyalists, civilian loyalists, who knew they could sell this cattle to the British, or by the British themselves, who had been tipped off. Hey, listen, there's a hundred head coming down. Henry Knox is leading a hundred head down from Connecticut. We know where they're going to cross the river. Let's just meet him there and steal it. And the cattle that did get through, once again, from the journals and diaries we read, the cattle that did get into the camp was so emaciated. Uh, I think it was Joseph Plum Martin who kept a wonderful, wonderful diary. He once saw a cow and he said, it was so thin, I felt I could see right through it. It would make a great lampshade. <laughs> and But what the cattle that did make it through, although you might not be able to eat it, it was so sinewy, what you could do was kill it, cut the hides, and make not even cured moccasins. At least it was something to cover your bare feet. I was recently at the Valley Forge National Park. And they had signs up, but showed, you know, what the soldiers' rations were supposed to be. And I looked at it, and I, I said, "Oh, a pound of beef—that sounds pretty good. A cup of rum or substitute vinegar. I, I certainly wouldn't have been wouldn't have been substituting that vinegar in that situation. But uh, yeah, a pound of beef sounds pretty good to me. But it, it's likely that they didn't get much more than the than the flour. I mean, there always seemed to be flour available, at least and corn." Point. Indian corn. corn. Yeah. That seemed to be... But they tried to keep that aside for all the men in the hospitals. They, they, mm. they established what Washington called these flying hospitals. You realize that the hospitals further inland in Pennsylvania were basically abattoirs. People were sick men and injured men were transported to these and they just never came back. They just died there because there was no conception of hygiene. They had no idea. Someone would die on a typhus-infected mm-hmm. straw bed or, or covered with, with a ty- uh, typhoid-infected blanket. And they died, and they bury them, and they put the next sick man right on the bed and cover him with the same blanket. So, men, so Washington uh, established these flying hospitals outside of each brigade. Even then, men knew, once you go to the hospital, you die. And so men were just dying in their huts, and they were counted on the rolls. That's why historians have no idea how many men were actually at Valley Forge. Mm-hmm. We say in the book anywhere between oh, 10,000, 12,000, 13, 5 may have marched in. Oh, maybe eight to 12,000 may have marched out. But there were so many dead men on the rolls, nobody has an accurate description. Your book describes, um, and the book, by the way, is uh, Valley Forge by Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. Highly recommend the book. Give it a read. Your book describes 
the horror that's going on in the in the camp and uh, it, you know you contrast that with what's going on in the Continental Congress and talk about that contrast for me I was getting visions of uh, what's happened you know many times with veterans much after that in America so, so America's beginning already, being indifferent towards veterans right from the get-go. And there seems to be this bifurcation of these are the people fighting and these are the civilians and the twain is not meeting. You're absolutely right, Bruce. I mean, if if you substitute active duty Continental soldiers and Minutemen for veterans today, the the similarity is, is overwhelming. Uh, Congress, of course, when the British captured Philadelphia, Right before Christmas, Congress, the Continental Congress fled. Now, most of the delegates returned to their home district, but anywhere at any given time in the, uh, the, the Western Pennsylvania city, well, at the time, Western Pennsylvania, today it's Eastern Pennsylvania, but at the time, at the Western Pennsylvania city of York, anywhere between 18, 23, 24 congressmen convened. And between the Continental Congress and the state legislature, and governor of Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia, of Pennsylvania. They had no idea. There was such a disconnect between what this army needed and what they thought it needed. I mean, at one point, the Philip Thomas Wharton, who was the governor of the state of, of Pennsylvania, he petitioned Washington to let some of his soldiers go so they could plant winter corn. And Washington got this, he got this message and he was like, are you nuts? Are you not these men can barely walk and I can't spare them to go plant winter corn? When are you people going to fix the supply lines? And the feds, much like today, Bruce, the feds would blame the state. The state would blame the locals. The locals would blame the feds. And what it all came down to was grandstanding, particularly, as I mentioned, by the New England faction led by John Adams, who, well, it's not our fault. It can't be. The, it can't be. We're a. Uh, you know, we are the the Athenians. We're modern day Athenians debating democracy here. It must be the fault of George Washington. He's a lousy commander. And then, of course, when Horatio Gates uh, defeats the British general, gentleman Johnny Burgoyne at Saratoga and captures some 5,000 redcoats, that only further emphasized the disjointedness between Washington and the politicians. They're like, oh, look at Gates. If he can do it, why can't Washington do it? We haven't been sending Gates all kinds of supplies. He managed to find supplies on his own. They just had no clue, much like today, of the differences between what's going on on the maps back in their boardroom, mm-hmm. so to speak, mm-hmm. and the reality of boots on the ground. Yeah, and they didn't understand that while uh, uh, Gates was operating in friendly territory, people coming right from their friendly New England farms and going over to Saratoga and fighting the battle of, of, of defense. And George Washington's operating in Quaker-held territory, as you say. Uh, you know, many of the soldiers were bitter about that, not really supportive. In fact, uh, not allowed uh, by the, the general meeting. The friends weren't even allowed to assist or act as teamsters. Um, that, that's what most embittered Washington's soldiery. The fact that they felt that they were fighting for the freedom, they kind of lumped, uh, of course, when William Penn established Pennsylvania, 
the uh, freedom of religious charter that he established attracted uh, all kinds of different sects, uh, Mennonites and Dunkers. And, but these men from different states, from New England, from the South, they just lumped them under the rubric Quakers. And here we are. My brothers are dying, starving, naked, fighting for your freedom. And even in some cases, some of the forward-thinking officers said, okay, we understand if it's your religious precept not to lift a weapon to fight, even though we're dying for you, the least you could do is stop smuggling your food into Philadelphia. The least you could do is perhaps tip us off every once in a while to a British patrol. But that never happened. You know, the, the Quakers were really bedeviled, uh, Washington, because, you know, it's one thing if you say, my religion forbids me to participate, to kill somebody else and be in an armed conflict. But when you are not providing some basic things, can you provide some food? Can you provide some shelter? Can you not tell the British where we are? And, you know, it was kind of hostile territory because you you had in, in, in some of the Pennsylvanian farmers who were around there, uh, and, and to be fair to them, you know, they, they farmed and they worked hard and they harvested their crops and stored things for the winter because they had families to feed. It's almost a miracle that we came out of this. It's almost a miracle that we're not Canada right now, Bruce. <laughs> Even in the best of times, throwing together a mix of southern sharecroppers, cosmopolitan seaport dwellers from the middle states, and flinty New Englanders would have resulted in a complex disharmony. As living conditions in Valley Forge deteriorated, these animosities began to take out a distinctly regional tenor. The first 400 huts erected, for instance, were located just past the defensive redoubt facing Philadelphia, at the camp's southeast corner. They housed troops from Virginia, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York, and Pennsylvania. The Virginians, naive about the rigors of northern winters, complained that their New England counterparts had purposely failed to show them how to construct these outer-line cabins for maximum warmth. Similarly, urban units invariably contained more artisans than their rural counterparts, and the skills carpenters scoffed that the frontiersmen's quarters were barely a step above lean-tos. As the revolutionary historian John Milsup observed, the New Englanders resented the Southerners, and the Southerners resented the New Yorkers. You know, you'd think that by the time the war was into its sixth or seventh year, everybody's one big happy army, but that wasn't necessarily, you know, the case. Uh, you know, John Lawrence, when he finally got a battlefield command, he went to South Carolina because he wanted to drive the British out of South Carolina. He wasn't going to be posted to New Jersey or New York or Massachusetts. So I think that uh, the the there was a the, the idealism of Washington. Yes, let's were one unified army opposing a single entity that we wanted to defeat. But within that army, there were regional you know, factions. Washington told the soldiers that uh, there's no states in this army where we all need to get together, everyone. But to, to how, what extent was that successful, or did people kind of tend to stay to their states? And Yeah, they tended to stay to their states. I mean, I, Washington was a very practical man, but there was aspects of him that was an idealist. And he really did want to see if he, if, you know, he was, he was not fighting to uh, free Virginia from British rule. He was fighting for the the states, the the collective states that would form this new country to free themselves from British rule. And he firmly believed uh, that the war that we fight for each other, as as one soldier, so to speak, 
representing the these United States, the better chance we have a success. Now he was correct, but putting that into applying that and on a practical basis uh, was very very hard to do. Um, and I think that that was the case for him throughout the war. You did have uh, a regional uh, separation to some extent. You know, the you had, you had troops. Were, some troops were coming from the Carolinas, and they, they were slaveholding states. That's not the truth. The truth of of the abolitionist bent uh, soldiers who were coming from the New England states. But during the Revolutionary War, five thousand black uh, men enlisted in, in the Continental Army, and of course, you didn't have five thousand in the army at one particular time because enlistments came and went. Uh, but there were several hundred at at, uh, at Valley Forge. The very first casualty at Valley Forge was was a soldier named Jethro, who was a freed man uh, from a regiment in Connecticut. He he basically essentially uh, froze to death on Christmas Eve. The Continental Army at that time was the last time that the United States would field a uh, an integrated army in, in a conflict until Korea. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a Ph.D. in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Uh, in fact, it was one of the things that happened at Valley Forge is one of our, our characters, John Lawrence, was strongly advocating uh, to raise more black troops to join the Continental Army. And he was actively resisted by, by officers, Southern officers. For the most part, these young men and teenagers were uneducated, truly undisciplined, shockingly underarmed, and strikingly unkempt. The last particularly needled the commander-in-chief. From his days organizing the Virginia Blues, Washington had taken great pride in the appearance of his troops. He had even ensured that his personal guard, then and now, were tall, broad-shouldered, and well-groomed troops whose martial courage set them apart. But the motley collection of soldiers now under his command routinely defied their superiors' orders regarding the length of their hair, 
and regularly decorated their uniforms, such as these were, with whatever bits of animal fur, ribbons, and feathers struck their fancy. These soldiers, and some of them teenagers, some of them at this point uh, are the next group of enlistments after some of the key soldiers have gone, and this right. is the kind of army that we have, and, and they've been fighting a long time. Some of them were like indentured servants and all kinds of people they could muster. Second sons, uh, the second sons were big primogenitor. The first son, when, when the first Continental Army was raised, which of course Congress didn't want to raise a standing army to start with because they figured this is what, this is what we're fighting against. This is what George III has done to us with a standing mm-hmm. army. We don't need the tyranny that we're experiencing right now. But by the time of Washington's winter encampment in, in Valley Forge in 1777-1778, a lot of the veterans who had only signed up for one year had already cashed out. And now he's getting these disparate militiamen who, despite their best intentions, really don't know what they're doing. They're second sons. They're, they're indentured servants. They're immigrants. That's one of the, that's one of the, Valley Forge was a melting pot of Polish and Irish and Scottish and English who were fighting against their, their own countrymen. And of course, the blacks that I mentioned, the black soldiers that I mentioned, there were Indians. There were there was a small contingent of uh, state New York Indians that uh, were at Valley Forge. Yes, Seneca's mm. that uh, the Marquis de Lafayette had recruited. And when the revolution was new, seventy five and seventy six, you could say even even some of seventy seven. Uh, you know, people from all across the spectrum of American society were enlisting. You know, you had you know, students, young men were leaving colleges and universities to join the army. They were store clerks. They, were, you know, they, there was a lot of educated men who joined the army and were soldiers. And uh, but then when reality started to set in, when the war kept going on, and there was one defeat after another, and there were casualties, um, a lot of these when their enlistments were up, or they just deserted. But some of them, when their enlistments were up, they were being replaced by uh, young men who didn't have as many options in life. You know, they didn't have the university or, or college to go to that was going to provide an alternative to military service. Uh, they didn't have a job waiting for them in a, in a uh, Boston or New York or, or uh, Philadelphia uh, shop. Being a soldier was maybe providing for them an opportunity. Uh, you know, you could say it's true. It's been true of, of American soldiers right up to the present day or soldiers universally that uh, they, they being, being in, the, in the military is an opportunity when on and, and otherwise in society you don't have a lot of options and a lot of opportunities. So you had a lot in the Continental Army of the, at Valley Forge. You did have a lot of these young men who were uh, they were not trained, they were not educated. So it was it was kind of a ragtag army. Drury and Clavin in their book talk about the arrival of von Steuben to the Continental Army. It's not an easy trip. <laughs> When Steuben and his company stepped on the pier at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from Europe on the first day of December, they were momentarily mistaken for redcoats and surrounded by gun-wielding patriots. Once the misunderstanding was cleared up, they journeyed on to Boston, where Steuben was extravagantly entertained by the likes of Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Steuben had written to Washington from Portsmouth, enclosing Franklin and Dean's letters of introduction and ostentatiously reiterating his intention to serve only as an unpaid volunteer. A cautious, if cordial, Washington redirected Steuben's application to the Continental Congress, and before long, the Prussian was in York, 
where the Continental Congress had retired to after the capture of Philadelphia, to formally introduce himself and press his case. The congressional delegates were well aware of Washington's disdain for most of the foreigners who had landed in America seeking battlefield honors. Steuben's circumstances differed in one major aspect, then immediately ingratiated him with the cost-conscious delegates. Steuben was willing to fight without pay. Despite his foppish appearance, Steuben was warmly greeted at Washington's headquarters, particularly by John Lawrence. The two had a conversation in French, long into Steuben's first night at camp, the beginning of a series of deep discourses between the young American and the worldly soldier of fortune. Steuben spent his initial weeks at Valley Forge on an informal inspection tour, during which he personally interviewed scores of officers and soldiers in their huts. Most were shocked when the eminent foreigner crossed their dingy thresholds to inquire about their rations, their arms, their sanitary habits. Steuben was equally astonished. His first report detailed a list of shortcomings, including rusty muskets and ammunition tins, a dearth of bayonets, and men standing guard duty in a sort of dressing gown made of old blankets or woolen bed covers. Unlike the imperious Conway, or for that matter, unlike most American officers who felt it beneath their station as gentlemen to personally lead drills, Steuben was not afraid to literally get down on his hands and knees in the mud and muck. What the Baron von Steuben uh, did when he arrived is he said, my goodness, you know, you have, uh, he, he immediately appreciated the resiliency. It was amazing to him that this army was still intact. Uh, and he said that, that actually meant that there was a lot of potential there. He was aghast that the Continental soldier who even possessed a bayonet, about half the troops did not own one, treated it as nothing more than a utensil to roast his beefsteak. The bayonet had evolved into a powerful tool in European armies, and it was not unusual to see the portly baron doff his blue regimental coat, hand his silver-tipped swagger stick to an aide, and demonstrate over and over again the correct manner of wielding and thrusting the weapon. So he he started to train them. He started to uh, make the show them what discipline was like. You know, something something is started off with with how how do you say it get get at attention and stay at attention? How do you maintain your discipline when you come under fire? Not just you know small arms fire, but when you, the cannonballs start whizzing around you, and and that's what he instilled in them, which is something that that few of them had had ever confronted before. By the end of his first week, Steuben exerting himself like a lieutenant eager for promotion, and his drillers were surrounded by crowds of fellow soldiers whooping and clapping their choreographed maneuvers. Now, of course, after the Valley Forge encampment, when they march out out of Valley Forge to meet the British on the sandy plains of New Jersey at what came, became known as the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, the British have their Butch and Sundance moment, like, hey, wait a minute. Who are these guys? These are the, is this the same scruffy bobtailed army that we kind of brushed off our shoulders like lint back at Brandywine Creek and back at Paoli and back at the Battle of Germantown? This is a professional, well-oiled machine. Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, that Monmouth Courthouse battle very nearly could have been an early Yorktown. I, I think your book correctly does this. If one were making a movie of Valley Forge, you'd certainly want to end with Monmouth. Well, you would, you know, for a couple of reasons. Not only did it was a case of what doesn't kill you make you stronger, they not only survived, but when they came out of there and took on the British after the encampment, they, they it was the, it was the turning point of the war, the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, which 
that previous fall, that same battle, they would have lost it. Uh, Sir Henry Clinton pulled the Washington. You know, when Washington had, in some previous battle, he realized, we got to get out of here because we don't have it in us to withstand the British a second day. So they would do a very, you know, maybe do a feint here or lit some campfires lit and sneak off in the middle of the night to fight another day. And, and Sir Henry Clinton and the British forces realized, we got to do the same thing here. We, we did not recognize these guys. Who were these guys that fought us to a standstill, that didn't cut and run when the cannonball started flying, when we started charging with the bayonets? And, and it was the longest battle of the war. It was on an intensely hot day. And, and uh, for, the, for the very first time, I, I think maybe you can make the exception of, of Burgoyne up at Saratoga, but as far as the, an opponent of Washington's, uh, that a British general said, I, I don't think we can beat these guys. And I think if, I'm gonna, if my army's going to survive, it's got to get out of here during the cover of darkness to fight another day. Thinking about the men, where do you think, where do they go from Valley Forge, these men that, are, that do survive? And even like throughout the rest of the war, and even after that, these men that were camped with Washington, did they A, have like a good opinion of him through their lives? And then uh, B, did they, would they be more like in the, the Jeffersonian side of things, the Federalist side of things? And what part did they play like in the debates and in, in the America that happened after the war? Well, there's, there's a stratification, of course, as there is in any military. To answer your first question first, Washington was a, a deity to them, to the average enlisted man. And even to the officers, the lower, the junior officers, the captains, the majors, the lieutenants, even to his homegrown generals like Nathaniel Green uh, from Rhode Island and, and Anthony Wayne, Mad Anthony Wayne, who was from Chester County, these men adored Washington and realized that it was only his physical presence and his steely resolve. It was an act of will on Washington's part that kept this army together. Characters who inhabit the pages of Valley Forge, and, and, and as much the Joseph Plum Martins who went off, he was a private who kept a wonderful diary, and the Albigence Waldo, the surgeon I mentioned. I'm talking about the people who rose to become statesmen. We contend that their shared core values were part of the most, uh, were not part of, were the most productive generation of statesmen in the history of the United States. And, and we say this. Thomas Paine, I guess at, at different points, was, was with them uh, in Valley Forge. Yes. Uh, what do you think, like, say, the bulk of the soldiers, are they with him, or are they thinking, oh, Paine, that radical, you know? Oh, no, no, no. They're with him. They're with him. These are the times that try men's soul, the summer soldiers. That's Paine. Washington had Paine's, his tracts, his pamphlets, he had them copied and passed out to company commanders to be read about at, along, uh, around campfires at night. And, and Paine's words buoyed these farm boys, these miners, these shoemakers, these second sons, these fishermen, all these people who had signed up and were ready to give their all for American independence. It was Thomas Paine and his philosophy that brought them all together, and, and they revered him. Well, I want to thank Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. They are the authors of Valley Forge. Thanks for coming on the program, and thanks to Simon & Schuster, the publisher of that book, Valley Forge, for setting this up. Hope you enjoyed it. 
Reminder about the premium podcast at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Support the show. Get more content. Thanks for listening.